0: From PRX.
1: Studio
2: 360. I'm Kurt Anderson, and today in Studio 360's American Icons, Monticello.
3: I'm probably one of the few people you'll ever meet who's actually jumped on Thomas
2: Jefferson's bed. Lucian Truscott is a fifth-generation grandson of Thomas Jefferson. And back in the early 1950s, Monticello, which had been Jefferson's home was not the perfectly appointed tourist destination that it's become since. Lucian and his brother pretty much had the run of the place. So
3: we just took off like a shot and went up in the upstairs bedrooms in the attic and out on the roof and dropped pebbles down on various tourists that were wandering around. When I was little, I used to go visit my great-grandmother and my great-aunts in Charlottesville.
2: After a few days, Lucian and his brother would start to drive the old ladies nuts. So they would be put in the car and then driven up the dirt roads to the top of the mountain. They
3: would drive up to the house and drive right onto the lawn, right up next to the front steps. And all the windows were down. Of course, it was in July or something, and it was probably 103 in Virginia. It was just like being in a steam bath. They'd honk the horn, and my great aunt would get out and, and cup her hands and go, Walk, Walker. And then she would sit back down in the Buick, and my great aunts would fan themselves furiously. And finally, around the corner of the house would come this uh, old black guy who was about, I guess he was in his 50s. He seemed like he was the oldest thing in the world to us. But And he'd walk up and uh, and lean on the door of the Buick and say, Wow, you look very nice today, Miss Moo. How are you doing? How are you, Miss Aggie? And he called them by their
2: nicknames. They were so familiar, like family, who hadn't seen each other in a while.
3: And so here was this, you know, old black guy working up at Monticello, and he called them by the same names we called them. They must have grown up together.
2: He didn't think much of it at the time, but looking back now, there was something odd about it.
3: His name was Walker, and my great-grandma's name was Mary Walker Randolph. So somewhere back in there, some Walker Randolph owned some Walker.
2: Lucian realized that his family, a few generations back, had probably owned this man Walker's family. For years, Thomas Jefferson's home has symbolized America's aspirations and its original sins. Like Walker and Lucian, they are deeply and permanently entangled. They are all descendants of Monticello.
0: If you want to understand this country and its people and what it means to be optimistic and complex and tragic and wrong and courageous, you need to go to Monticello.
2: That's the illustrator and artist Myra Hellman. Her book, And the Pursuit of Happiness, is a very personal look at American democracy. She chronicles President Obama's inauguration, walks the halls of Congress, and visits Monticello.
0: Visiting places, visiting sites is the strongest way to relate to history. Going to Mount Vernon... All of these homes, I mean, you miss that Ben Franklin doesn't have a home, and it's felt, the loss of that is felt, because you need the center of gravity of somebody's life, and then you can input all of your feelings and and questions about somebody's life in their home. Philosopher,
2: astronomer, musician, legislator. After visiting Monticello, a contemporary of Jefferson's listed some of the great man's occupations. And he also remarked that he, quote, had placed his mind, as he has done his house, on an elevated situation from which he might contemplate the universe.
4: Jefferson is not like ordinary people that are, you know, dead white males.
2: Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Joseph Ellis wrote American Sphinx, a biography of Jefferson.
4: Ordinary Americans have opinions about Jefferson – um, my furnace repair man told me as he saw my books of Jefferson on my desk, that, you better know that Jefferson is an evangelical Christian. <laughs> and a little old lady in Richmond told me that I was all wrong about Jefferson, and that she knew I was wrong because he came and spoke to her in her bedroom the night before. Jefferson's body seems to come to life for people. They still think he's with us in some sense. And going to Monticello is a way of communing with that spirit.
2: If you can picture Monticello in your mind's eye, describe what you're
5: seeing. Monticello sits on a hilltop, so during the day you can see forever. Majestic vistas into the Blue Ridge. They're soft, they roll, they're literally blue. You drive up the mountain.
6: There is a garden as you drive up to the front.
5: It's a single story, or it appears to be a single story
2: villa. Virginia brick and white trim, porticos with pediments.
5: Has a dome? It isn't that grand, and certainly not ostentatious. It's kind of smaller than you think it is when you see it for the first time, I think. In fact, when the Queen visited, she supposedly said Mr. Jefferson had a nice little cottage. Compared to Windsor, it is.
7: Yes. Everything centered around that one man.
5: Every room is part of Jefferson's three-dimensional autobiography.
7: It
8: feels like him. I mean, he designed it, so you have to imagine this is an expression of his own personality. Exactly. Your home is you. Exactly. And so he was domed and colonnaded.
5: If you want to understand Thomas Jefferson, you have to understand Monticello.
6: All right, now your house door is going to be at 115.
0: So. Between food and where you live, those are the two most intimate things that you can... Find out about
6: people. So
0: there's two tickets, the bus. So there's no reason not to be snoopy about it.
6: Do
9: we have all our one fifteens there? Then we're ready them.
2: So this bed right here was not just a bed to rest after you. No, had no, no. this that's is actually the where you slept.
1: A, that's actually Jefferson's bed.
2: Monticello's senior curator, Susan Stein. It's an odd bed.
1: It is. And in all of the other bed chambers They're
0: enclosed. They have a wall. But here, it's open on both sides. So he could get out on either side of the bed and either get dressed or pop over to his desk and, uh, I don't know what, read Spinoza.
5: I've made several trips there during my life.
2: Film director James Ivory visited Monticello in the 1990s while he was researching his Merchant Ivory film Jefferson in
5: Paris. They were having a big exhibition of personal possessions of Jefferson's. Uh, in one of the rooms, his riding boots were just standing there. They
0: were black boots with that little brown rim on top. They were gorgeous boots.
5: I remember
2: slipping my hand down inside one of those boots. Uh, I, I couldn't help it. I, it was like I, you know, I had some feeling of the living leg almost of, the, of, the, of Jefferson being there. And I haven't been back since.
1: Those are his actual boots.
2: They're very handsome in their two tonedness.
1: What does James Ivory say?
2: He said how happy he was to reach into one of them.
1: We wouldn't have let him do that. <laughs> <laughs> let me assure you that we didn't let him do that. Yeah.
0: It's that I'm going to touch, now I'm going to touch something that was on his body. And it's not reverential, it's just fascinating that he actually existed, that they were alive, that we didn't make them up. <music>
2: The house that stands today is not the house that Jefferson first built. The first Monticello, which he started when he was 25, was based almost entirely on his studies of Andrea Palladio, an architect from the Italian Renaissance 200 years earlier. Young Jefferson did not want his new house to blend in with its neighbors.
10: Notes on the state of Virginia, 1781. The private buildings in Virginia are very rarely constructed of stone or brick, much the greater portion being of scantling and boards plastered with lime. It is impossible to devise things more ugly, uncomfortable, and, happily, more perishable.
2: Just three years later, after the death of his wife at 33, and with the American Revolution won, Jefferson escapes Monticello for Paris as our first ambassador to France. But his free time he spends on an architectural sightseeing tour. And even there, when it comes to building, he can't help himself. He's got a gorgeous Parisian home, but he breaks open the walls and renovates. And it's a rental. When he returns to America and his hilltop in Virginia, he is filled with dreams of modern architectural wonders. Domes and skylights and beds and alcoves
4: over the ensuing years Jefferson kept adding and then renovating kept tearing down and building up a lot of people that visited Jefferson felt like they were camping out because there wasn't a ceiling there or the wall hadn't been constructed yet
0: he was striving for something and when you're when you're that kind of person then that, that that's what you do you don't compromise
4: So it's a construction site with people hammering away and Irish artisans doing this and that, um, slaves doing other forms of labor. And so the kind of serenity of Monticello, (laughs) as we see it now, is misleading. It was very busy, almost a kind of circus, so that there's a contrast between the real Monticello and the kind of, um, it's almost elegiac thing that people see now.
11: Jefferson is not a professional. That's why he's such a great architect. He doesn't have to worry about the styles.
2: Award-winning architect Jack Robertson, a fellow Virginian.
11: He goes to every architect who's known and asks him, what do you think? And they send him detailed drawings. He says, thank you so much. it's been very helpful. Then he goes off and does his own thing. And, and, and
2: such a person couldn't exist today, could they? No. Who, uh, this sort of skillful, he's, curious he's, amateur. Yeah,
11: he's his own client. And he doesn't have to be written about by the critics, and he doesn't have to keep up with fashion.
2: What if Thomas Jefferson had not designed this, and you simply showed up as an architect? Would you think it's extraordinary?
11: Yeah. Oh, sure. No, as soon It's you not because go in.
2: Thomas Jefferson did it.
11: No, 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 no. If you look at the plans, which are brilliant, it's profoundly intelligent and practical. The more you read about the son of a bitch, you think, God damn Damn it, it is the mind, and it's a mind that is so ordered and focused and obsessed, but with everything that has to do with making the settings of life more pleasurable.
2: Did it work well as a house for him? Uh, was he pleased with what he had wrought? He's never pleased with it. Jefferson biographer Joseph Ellis.
4: It's an eccentric house. It's designed to look the way he wants it to look in a way that, at times, is not very functional. Um, the staircases to the top... Tiny. To the second, uh, really, you know, you, it's very difficult to get up
2: and down them. <laughs> oh, these are the tiny little staircases?
1: Yeah, these are the... This stair, is it, huh? This is it. Wow. You know, the, uh, you know there's one on the other side. So but these passage. are, this is what,
2: two feet wide?
1: Two feet wide, and it's a very... It's much, a very Stairmaster uh, operation oh, yeah, to get is, up there. Yeah, it right. is. So, shall we? Sure.
2: Jefferson had a thing about stairs. He didn't want some grand, now we present Mr. Jefferson kind of staircase in his house. He thought they were a waste of space. No, you're very conscious of a climbing.
1: Yes, it's very climbing.
2: The stairway up to the top of the house is so narrow that it's not normally open to visitors. But of course, exceptions are made. Dan Jordan and his wife, Lou, ran Monticello for many years, and they took up President's Ambassadors, Mick Jagger.
9: Yes, we're so fond of those memories of Mick Jagger. (laughs) Of course, his agility and athletic abilities are something that make all of us um, stare. And so he started up the steps. I've been up these steps with hundreds of people. He's the only person I've ever seen climb without holding on to either the banister or touching the wall. He absolutely flew up the steps. So, we couldn't have been more impressed by that.
5: (laughs) I don't blame you. He was very well-mannered, also, and uh, engaging from the minute he arrived. And no hard feelings on a
2: British-American basis either, I guess. Never came up. (laughs) (laughs) We certainly weren't going to bring it up. Now, this is a very austere space up here. Is this? It is. Do we believe more or less as it was?
1: Yes. Um, here is... Wow. We're in this the dome. Is, we're in the dome. And it took a great deal of calculation to do this. And in fact, his involvement with every aspect of this is mind-boggling. He calculated the um, dimensions often to the thousandth of an inch, which no workman could ever hope to achieve.
2: Now, banks and libraries and churches have domes, but not private houses. And to this day, we don't know precisely what Jefferson intended his for.
1: It's an architectural conceit. It's having the dome and being able to look at it from the outside that mattered. With these
2: six big oculi that yes, six big see every
1: direction. Yes.
2: Susan Stein is certain that Jefferson's intention was just aesthetic. It looked cool, but her colleague at Monticello, senior research historian Cinder Stanton,
12: has a darker speculation. I often think of Monticello as a panopticon with Jefferson, the all-seeing, at the top. He could see everything that was going on. Jefferson had a copy of Jeremy
2: Bentham's 18th century book Panopticon in his collection. A panopticon was a new kind of enlightened prison design with a circular stack of cells surrounding a central watchtower. The inmates never know if they're being
12: watched or not. At least two former slaves talk about Jefferson with his telescope watching enslaved people at work, so this whole concept of surveillance from his central place on the apex of the mountain came through the oral tradition. He could see out, but nobody could see in.
2: Up next, the legacy of Thomas Jefferson as a slaveholder remains troubling and even controversial.
3: One guy sent me a picture of the barrel of the pistol looking right at me, and underneath that it said, "'Die, race traitor.'"
2: This is Studio 360, I'm Kurt Anderson. Stay tuned this hour for more American Icons, Monticello. This is Studio 360, and I'm Kurt Anderson. In this hour of Studio 360's American Icons, we're looking at the extraordinary home that Thomas Jefferson designed for himself, Monticello. This first level of garden right here down this hill are, were, were what? what? What are we looking at?
13: This was Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden.
2: Peter Hatch took care of Monticello's gardens for 35 years. Jefferson documented
13: in this garden itself, and in the orchard below it, um, 350 varieties of vegetables and 170 varieties of fruit. And One wonders if any man before had grown so many
10: different kinds of vegetables in one place before Thomas Jefferson did it here at Monticello. Monticello, 1794. Objects for the garden this year. Snap, cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli, turnips, carrots. Thomas corn Jefferson's corn. garden book. Monticello. Indian potato, beet, horseradish. An
2: incredibly corn. meticulous Plans. record of his gardens that he kept Parsons, for almost celery, 60 shallots, years. Parsley,
10: spinach, nasturtium, sorrel. Where were ranch, the flower gardens? Flower gardens
13: around the house.
10: let well, we go look? Sure. sure.
6: For me, walking around Monticello is complicated.
2: The novelist Jamaica Kincaid has written extensively about gardens and gardening.
6: On the one hand, I completely, and this uh, this will sound very peculiar, I do identify with him in the way I identify with writers. On the other hand, so much of his life would have involved... A great deal of cruelty directed at someone who looks like me.
10: Lettuce, scarlet cabbage, onions, undies, curled, white mustard, cucumbers, squashes, celery, celery, potato, potato, pumpkin. The garlic, garden
6: melon, book salmon, has. You know details of the things he planted, food he planted, but they, it looks as if it just fall magically at the table. So he'll say peas were planted. Peas March 6th come to table. Uh, six weeks later, peas appear at the table. There is no involvement of labor. There's no soiling of, there's no soil <laughs> at all. It's as if it's Eden. It doesn't have any evil in it.
10: Role of the Negroes, taken in 1783.
6: The farm book, on the other hand, is all evil.
10: Betty Hemmings, Martin, born 1755, Bob, 1762. The farm book is very much like the garden book, a
2: scrupulous record of Jefferson's life at Monticello. But instead of the plants
10: and vegetables he keeps, he lists the human beings he owns. Sally, 1773, Johnny, April 24, 1776... Daniel, 1772,
12: Molly, Marshall. We're walking down what Jefferson called Mulberry Row. It's lined with mulberry trees.
2: Unlike the historians who spend their days in the utterly charming worlds of Jefferson's book collection and vegetable gardens, Cinder Stanton has focused on the history of slavery at
12: Monticello. If you think too hard about uh, what happened to, to people here, it's difficult. I mean, here, at the home of one of the most enlightened men in the country.
2: Stanton showed us around Mulberry Row, where 40 or 50 slaves lived and worked at any one time. But aside from the horse stables, there's only one building that remains. The rest were cheap and made of wood and have disappeared.
12: It seems very empty today, and I once was standing here, just about where we are now, back in the 1990s and began talking to an African-American woman who was looking down the row. And then she looked up at the house with the beautiful white newly painted balustrade and the pointed brickwork and said, it's as if we've been erased. Over the course
2: of his life, Jefferson owned more than 600 slaves. From here, a bit downhill from the house, you can't help but notice the upstairs-downstairs geography of Monticello.
5: Even when we arrived, slavery was the S-word. Uh, they had every euphemism you can imagine about Jefferson's servants or his family or whatever, this sort of thing.
2: Dan Jordan was president of Monticello from 1985 until
5: 2008. I think it's a much more nuanced and enriched experience today than it was 30 years ago. But that's the way it ought to be. I mean, things evolve. Yeah, that's amazing. They,
2: really, they didn't say slavery. 30 no, it was the S-word. That was not very long ago, the early 1980s. Have our perceptions of the founding fathers changed so much that we can now accept them, slaves and all? I took my question to one of today's most important American commentators. Monticello was built and operated
8: mainly by slaves. It's such an ugly word. Slaves. Slaves.
2: (laughs) Stephen Colbert.
8: The nice thing that the founders have is status. Do you know what I mean? And so... Uh, so few things have status to us anymore. Everything can be torn down. But they're stuck like, like a fly in amber. The Constitution being you know, the great amber of their status. So they're always good for a laugh because all you have to do is undercut the statue-like quality of them. Of course, the big get for any interviewer would be our third president, Thomas Jefferson, who just happens to be the subject of the second part in our continuing series, Better Know a Founder. One of our greatest presidents, our greatest founding father, is also um, the one we've got the goods on in terms of being a jerk. In the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson declared all men's inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of Sally Hemming's sweet apple-cheek
14: booty. I
8: don't think there's anything sort of Sacred about his relationship with Sally Hemings It still seems like an, an abusive power relationship Especially when he talks so much about power relationships In what he wrote about Whether it's the power of the state to the church Or of one state to another state Or the well, government over man The thing about Sally Hemings as well Is that she was his late wife's half-sister What? Yes Oh, so, oh, so it runs in the family Ish. Because his, yeah. his wife's, wife's father Also Also had sex with the slaves Correct Wow! Oh, well, that's very interesting. Well, that's almost a sweet story then. There you go. You you've got really, you've really opened my eyes to how a, a master having sex with a slave really can be a very lovely story.
2: It's much more complicated Thank than you, you think. Uh huh.
4: I think most of the scholarly community now regards it as pretty much of a clear thing.
2: Again, Jefferson biographer Joseph Ellis.
4: What kind of relationship Jefferson had with Hemings? Was it love? Was it lust? Was it rape? impossible to know that, and and people that want to write about that are going to have to write fiction.
2: Right.
6: I was born Sarah Sally Hemings in the year of our Lord, 1773.
2: And there has been a lot of fiction, including the inevitable made-for-TV movie.
6: I was born to slavery, but destined to scandal.
2: If you think about it, Jefferson
4: argued that one of the reasons that he couldn't free his slaves was that once freed, the blacks would intermarry with the whites and would dilute the pure Anglo-Saxon race. Well, (laughs) he's fathering uh, children by Sally Hemings, and some of them look almost purely white. And, you know, you get in, again, Faulknerian scene where he's eating dinner and he's being served by a slave – who happens to be his own son.
2: And very much as in a Faulkner novel, the scandal over Jefferson's relationship with Hemmings still haunts the descendants, all of them. If you walk about a quarter mile from the house down the hill toward the woods, you come across the family graveyard.
13: When I go to the graveyard, it takes my breath away.
9: Unlocking the graveyard.
13: The graveyard's surrounded by a, a tall... A cast iron fence.
9: Okay, now we can get in. Uh,
13: there's a creaky gate. I think it still is, even with all the upkeep we've we've had.
2: John Works will be buried here someday. He's a former president of the Monticello Association, a group of Jefferson's recognized descendants. They actually control this little parcel of land just down from the house.
13: We spend most of our time discussing. Uh, how to maintain the graveyard, cutting the lawn, trimming the trees, helping with new burials. I mean, we're frankly a relatively boring, sleepy organization.
9: See if we can find the Truscott family.
13: We have
3: a row there right along the fence.
2: Lucian Truscott IV is a writer and also a member of the Monticello Association.
3: You know, my mother and father are buried there. My brother's buried there. My my, of course, my great-aunts and great-grandparents and great-uncles and so forth. And, and one day, I guess, I'll be buried there.
9: There's ample space to bring more people here to rest.
3: I hope not too soon.
9: Now, one thing about this graveyard is that the Hemmings descendants are not buried here. No one
2: paid too much attention to the graveyard until 1998, when the science journal Nature published an article called Jefferson Fathered Slave's Last Child. It showed through DNA evidence that it was highly likely that Thomas Jefferson was the father of Eston Hemmings, Sally's youngest son, born when Jefferson, widowed decades earlier, was 65. Eston was probably their fourth or fifth child together.
3: When that DNA evidence came out, that was when the Oprah show called and said, you know, would you and your family like to be on the show and meet your Hemings cousins? And I said, sure.
7: Today, for the very first time, Thomas Jefferson's white relatives are going to meet his
6: black relatives. Isn't that interesting? My name
7: is Shea Banks Young, and I am a descendant of the slave Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson through their second youngest son, uh, Madison Hemings. Come on out. Shea knew about her tie to Jefferson through old family stories and my mother would talked about all the time her great-grandmother, they called her Grandma Spears, and she said Grandma Spears looked like a little shriveled-up white lady. Got so it. no one questioned who Grandma Spears was. They knew her life.
3: And, and it's time to stop testing all that stuff and just open up the Monticello Association and, and,
7: and open up... First thing I hear about this group is that they take care of the cemetery and they don't like us. <laughs> I
3: mean, this is all about
7: blood and land. Mm-hmm. I asked Lucian at of one of those breaks, I said, well, what are you going to do from here? And I thought,
3: well, that's a Good question. And then I thought, well, how about everybody go to the Monticello and the family? They go with us to the Monticello Association meeting in May. You know I with... are not
6: from the family.
2: Well. <laughs> <laughs> sure, the Oprah show brought together long-lost black-and-white cousins like Shay and Lucian Truscott. But it also set up a fight. And so the next time the association met, instead of a sleepy meeting about trimming trees or fixing fences there were reporters there from all over the world Shea banks young and john works both remember it
7: well that first meeting was awful it was absolutely awful
13: the pressure was enormous i mean just imagine if if the jeffersons and the hemmings could get along wouldn't that make a good example to start you know healing uh, race relations in this country well that just you know that sounds wonderful it really really does but we have our own rules
7: they let us know that we were not welcome to be there. And in fact, before we got our dessert, they got up and asked us to leave, <laughs> So, which we didn't leave.
13: I didn't mean to offend anyone. It was purely to try to make a distinction between a social gathering and the start of a business meeting. But it did draw a line in the sand.
7: I was really um, disgusted that someone would invite me to something and then turn around and act like I crashed their party.
13: I think the Hemings had the impression that they were going to simply bulldoze their way into the Monticello Association without any resistance whatsoever, and uh, I stood up to them.
7: And so the battle began.
2: From 1999 until 2001, the Monticello Association debated whether to accept the Hemingses as family. If they are in fact cousins, then they're entitled to be buried in the family graveyard at Monticello.
3: You know, in the South, the idea of mixing white and black graves is still a very, very sensitive and very controversial thing.
2: There was so much publicity that people outside the family targeted Lucian Truscott, who had put himself right in the center of the fight.
3: The first couple of years that I took the Hemings to Monticello, I got well in excess of 100 death threats. Some of them were really creative. I mean, one guy had a, a Jefferson nickel embedded into the the wooden grip of a forty-five caliber pistol. He sent me a picture of the barrel of the pistol facing right, looking right at me, and underneath that it said, Die, race traitor.
2: In 2001, the Monticello Association published its own report declaring it unlikely that Thomas Jefferson had been the father of any of Sally Hemings' children.
3: One refrain that you heard all the time from these guys was, well, Jefferson wasn't that kind of man, you know.
7: Now, I can tell you a funny story about that if you want me to. There was one man that stood up at one of the meetings, and he said he had definite proof that Eston Hemings could not have been a child of Thomas Jefferson. And he said, the reason I know that is because at the time that he would have been born, Thomas Jefferson's youngest daughter was very sick and dying. And he said, and everyone knows a man would not want to have sex during that time. And (laughs) it's like, hello.
13: None of us that I know of are racist. All of us want to do the right thing. Again, the former association president, John Works. If you believe the allegations, Sally Hemings was a third his age, in addition was a slave, who didn't have the ability or right to consent. It just seems completely contrary to Jefferson's character. And it makes him look like a liar, fraud, and hypocrite.
2: In 2002, the Monticello Association voted 67 to 5 against admitting the Hemings' descendants into their club.
9: So here's what's written on the gravestone. It says, here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia.
7: If someone in my family wanted to be buried at Monticello, I think that they should have that right. However, please know for the record that I have my own plot next to my own mother that I would plan to get buried in. You know, I have no desire to go back and be buried at the plantation. I mean, to me, why do I want to do something like that? And I've even told my son, if they ever get permission and I'm dead and gone, don't dig me up and take me back there either because I really would have a problem with that when I, the great getting up day that I don't see my mother and had to come up and see Thomas Jefferson. To me, I have to treat him as a true ancestor and as a slaveholder. And Monticello breeds of that.
1: Right here.
2: Sorry guys, it's actually not public in here. We're doing a special
11: taping for the radio. And we left the gate open. Yeah, no, it's okay.
2: Since 2002, there have been no requests from Heming's descendants to be buried in the Jefferson family graveyard. Up next in this hour, Monticello's caretaker lets the house fall on hard times.
5: He stabled cattle in the basement in the winter. He stored grain on those beautiful parquet floors in the parlors. And, you know, worst of all, he allowed University of Virginia students to have parties there.
8: Oh, the road to vinegar hill, we're going to get drunk tonight. The
2: is from Party House to American Icons. That's just ahead in this hour of Studio 360's American Icons from WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Stay with us. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. All right. In this hour of Studio 360's American Icons, we are looking at Monticello the home designed and built by Thomas Jefferson.
10: Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. This United States District Court... for the Western Every Fourth District of July, members the, members the,
2: members the, members. the Thomas Jefferson Foundation hosts naturalization ceremonies for new citizens. Please be seated and come to order. At Monticello, one of the places where America itself was dreamed up, it's a tearjerker.
14: My name is Mary McFadden, and I
9: first came to the United States. My name States. is Xenia Diaz, Chicago, and I was from El Salvador,
10: I spent half of my life in Korea and uh, half of it in here.
9: I'm especially thankful
14: for the wonderful friends and neighbors who befriended me and my children when we needed friends the most. Thank you, fellow Americans, and God bless America.
2: The question of who's American and who's not was at the center of a strange and little-known chapter in the history of Monticello. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. We take for granted today that a great historical site like Monticello is preserved and treated with respect. But in the years after Thomas Jefferson lived there, his home was a mess. Well, Jefferson was a great little record keeper. Historian Hugh Howard is the author of Thomas Jefferson Architect.
3: You know, he knew that he would spent 25 cents for this and $2 for that. So he had these great big long columns of figures, but
2: he never did add them up. He never totaled.
4: Like when he's building the University of Virginia, it's down to the last dollar exactly how much it's going to cost to build the rotunda.
2: Jefferson biographer Joseph Ellis. You
4: know, it's going to be $7,525.36. And you say, man, this guy's got this under control, (laughs) except there's no relationship between those numbers and what it really costs. To be adept at accounting is almost beneath him.
10: A letter to former Secretary William Short. I now enclose to you a statement of my account with you. The result of this has astonished me beyond anything which has ever happened in my life, for though I kept such exact entries in my daily memorandum book as would enable me or anybody else to state the account accurately in a day, yet I had never collected the items or formed them into an account till within these few days. It's not
2: too hard to relate to Jefferson's willful denial of his financial situation. If you've ever maxed out your credit cards or taken a second mortgage to do home renovations, there's a point at which debt becomes almost too abstract to deal with sensibly.
4: And I would say he never faces the degree to which he's spending himself into bankruptcy until the very end of his life. And at that time, he realizes that he's going to pass on to his heirs, in modern terms, several million
2: dollars worth of debt. Jefferson died knowing that he was leaving a remarkable legacy. As former Monticello caretaker Lou Jordan recounts, even the timing of his death was like some piece of implausible fiction.
9: He truly willed himself to stay alive until July the 4th. And it was the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Of course, John Adams also expired the same day, the two great patriots, and two that we look up to forever.
2: Jefferson died at home, at Monticello. He was 83, a very ripe old age for the time, and he'd lost everyone over the course of his life. His best friend, his wife, all but one of his children. His daughter, Martha, remained his constant companion to the end. And in 1826, after he died, she and her family were saddled with the full legacy of his financial neglect. Again, historian Hugh Howard.
3: They have an auction, and they sell much of the contents of the house, which don't go for a lot of money. They sell the slaves, which do go for a certain amount of money. And
10: they begin to think about selling the house.
4: It turns out that they became wards of the state. They were impoverished. I mean, it's a a tragedy. Eventually, in 1834, it's purchased by a Jewish man named Uriah Levy.
2: Uriah Levy was a fifth-generation Jewish American, a commodore in the Navy and a descendant of one of the first families to settle in Savannah, Georgia, back in the 1730s. He bought Monticello for only $2,700,
5: the equivalent of maybe 300000 today. Although we think of it in, you know, reverential terms, back then it was just different. Mark Leapson is
2: the author of a book about this period in the history of the house called Saving Monticello.
5: When Uriah Levy purchased the place, it was falling apart. He repaired, preserved, and restored Monticello.
2: Uriah used the house for almost 30 years. When he dies at the beginning of the Civil War, there's a family battle over the estate. And while that went on, the house was entrusted to a not very trustworthy
5: caretaker. He stabled cattle in the basement in the winter. He stored grain on those beautiful parquet floors in the parlors. And, you know, worst of all, he allowed University of Virginia students to have parties there. The students would hold keggers, essentially,
2: and write their names inside Monticello's precious dome. When Jefferson Levy, a nephew, finally took over his uncle's house, he counted a thousand signatures.
14: This is Jefferson Monroe Levy. This is my grandfather, Louis Napoleon Levy. Harley Lewis
2: is is a descendant of Jefferson Levy.
14: My youngest child, who, you know, my children are now grown with children. I have grandchildren. I remember that in school they were studying Thomas Jefferson, and I once said to him, well, did you mention something about Monticello, the mother? He said, who would believe me? I know, they didn't say a word. <laughs> they never even mentioned it. It's sort of incredible.
2: Harley did not spend her summers there. By the time she was born, the house had been the site of a very public, very mean-spirited battle.
5: That movement was led by a woman whose name was Maud Littleton.
14: I can barely say the name. She was a congressman's wife.
5: And uh, her husband was a congressman from New York, as was Jefferson Levy. And so, being a hospitable guy, one New York
2: Democratic congressman to another, Jefferson Levy invited the Littletons out to his country place in Virginia.
5: And then Mrs. Littleton later said that she was appalled by what she saw there, that this was not right. She didn't call them Jews. She called them aliens. Aliens and outsiders. I mean, Uriah Levy was a fifth-generation American. Jefferson Levy was a sixth-generation American. They couldn't have been any less of outsiders.
2: Maud Littleton then fired up a campaign to confiscate Monticello from the levies. It made it all the way to Congress. There were hearings in both the House and the Senate.
5: These hearings were bombastic. They made the front pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post. Some people called it the War of 1912. This
2: was the peak moment of the immigrant tide to America from Eastern and Southern Europe. To stop this immigration to our glorious nation. Catchy, huh? Littleton's allies made up stories about how the Levies had come to own Monticello. And one had Uriah Levy on a
5: stagecoach. Pardon me excuse me pardon me in some versions they have Uriah Levy speaking in this kind of shylocky German accent is this seat taken just sitting next to him happened to be a man who was going to purchase Monticello for the Randolph family a
2: Randolph a good honest to God
5: descendant of Martha
2: Jefferson Randolph
5: out to buy Monticello back for the family supposedly Uriah Levy found this out got the guy drunk would you like a drink? And the next morning, he bought the house out from under this man. You're a very clever fellow, but you talk too much. Which couldn't be more anti-Semitic if they had called him a dirty Jew. You know, it's completely made up, but that story circulated and circulated and circulated.
14: Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of letters protesting wanting this property brought back to the people.
2: The bill was narrowly defeated in Congress. Jefferson Levy had finally won the battle, but he was to soon lose the war. In the years afterward, he, like Thomas Jefferson before him,
5: ran into money trouble. He put Monticello on the market. And, you know, you can see the sales brochure. First page on the inside, there's all these quotes about how wonderful this place is from people like the Marquis de Lafayette, you know, and and Teddy Roosevelt. And and then the next page, it says, and this property can be yours for $500,000. The house
2: didn't sell for a decade. Then, in 1923, the Thomas Jefferson
5: Foundation raised the capital and Jefferson Levy sold. This was a very emotional scene, and he burst out crying. He said that he never dreamt that he would ever part with the property.
2: Monticello had been owned by members of the Levy family for 89 years, longer than Thomas Jefferson himself had owned it. But this surprising fact was ignored at the historic site for decades.
1: We are standing at the grave of Rachel Phillips
14: Levy. And she
2: Until 1985, when Harley Lewis was invited to return to Monticello and rededicate her ancestor's grave.
14: We were standing by the graveyard and listening to people saying, I didn't know a Jew lived here, you know, and so forth. And they wanted to take a picture of us.
2: Franklin Roosevelt visited Jefferson's home many times, including this July 4th visit in 1936.
4: I have come here today to renew my homage to the sage of Monticello.
2: FDR revered Jefferson, whom he called the sage of Monticello. He claimed Jefferson as the original Democrat. He built the Jefferson Memorial on the Mall in Washington and put his face and his home on the nickel. When you approach that house, do you think, oh, it's the nickel? Uh, no, I, <laughs> I never thought that. i got one. Here, actually, i got a couple.
5: If I see a nickel, I think, oh, it's the house. Mm-hmm. On the front, of course, Jefferson's portrait, but on the back, we have Monticello. It's really funny. It doesn't look
0: like Monticello.
5: And I would make it one of the most easily recognizable buildings in this country.
0: It's much smaller than I remember it. On this uh, nickel. Can I keep this Those
8: nickel? are your nickels. This is my nickel. Yeah. Two, two. two nickels.
0: This doesn't approximate the experience of going to Monticello. I say you can look at your nickel, but you should go there.
4: When you tour Monticello, you need to realize that you're talking about a beautiful piece of architecture in the midst of an enslaved African-American population, and that that's, that's what Monticello really is.
2: Today, Monticello is not just an historic home, but an archaeological site as well. Researchers working with the Thomas Jefferson Association continue scrutinizing every bit of the estate for physical traces of slave life toward the goal of bringing Mulberry Row back to life. So while the house on your nickel is frozen in time, the real Monticello is still under construction.
4: When we read of the Patriots of 1776,
2: FDR understood that that's what makes Monticello iconic. It isn't just a beautiful piece of architecture. It is deeply flawed as a place, but aspires to greatness. Speaking of the founding fathers and of Jefferson, above all, FDR said this.
14: were not the gods of things as they were. But the gods of things as
4: they
2: ought to be. Theirs were not the gods of things as they were, but the gods of things as they ought to be. Because even Thomas Jefferson himself knew that he was not the man he ought to be. I think it represents a
4: a kind of utopian streak in Jefferson's mentality. He never quite gets there. So that uh, sense of
2: being a work in progress.
4: Yes, yes, very much, always a work in progress. It's it's sort of, you know, if you think of the magic words of the Declaration, we hold these truths, that's an ideal towards which we strive but will never reach. Uh And Monticello was was an architectural version of the same principle.
10: We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life. Liberty and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence, July 4, 1776.
2: This hour of Studio 360's American Icons was produced by Amanda Aronchik and edited by David Krasnow. Our Thomas Jefferson was performed by David Strathairn. And almost all of the music is thanks to David Pryor. Thanks also to Emily Boutine, Tony Field, Ann Hepperman, Kara Oler, Posey Gruner, Wayne mogul Nikki, Chris Bannon, Melinda Ward, Leslie Wolf, Alan Widmark, and Julie Burstein. Since we first aired this episode in 2010, Shea Banks-Young has died, and Cinder Stanton has retired from the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International.
1: Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Great Ideas Brought to Life, and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks.
13: RI, Public Radio International.
2: Next time in Studio 360, the comedy team of John Early and Kate Berlant tell me about their favorite comedy teams. We
3: do like to think of ourselves like harkening back to something a
2: little more timeless. Yeah. You know, Burns and Allen, Nichols and May, yeah. French and Saunders.
12: Simon and Schuster. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.